I'd like to have us open to our text for this morning. Exodus 20, verse 16. Exodus 20, verse 16, that's on page 60 in the Pew Bibles, if you're following along there. We are continuing a sermon series uh, this morning, looking at the intersection of faith and politics. I've said this repeatedly throughout this series, so I'll say it again. I am not here to tell you who to vote for or which party to support. Uh, We're not gonna get into specific pieces of legislation or judicial decision making because I am neither a political scientist nor a politician nor a, a lawyer, so that is not my job. I'm a pastor, and so as a pastor, it is my job instead to help us think Christianly and biblically and theologically about how we engage in every area of our lives, including our politics, and so that's what we're trying to do in this series as well. So keep your thumb uh, in that passage or keep it open, Exodus 20, verse 16. I'm actually gonna get into the introduction of the sermon first, then we'll get to that verse in just a little bit. So brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a few years ago, uh, a member of our small group was lamenting uh, his lack of discipline when it came to his faith life, uh, his, his relationship with God. A former college football player, he said, you know, when I played football, we had practices, we had workouts, we had drills that helped us get better at playing football. And then he paused for a moment and said, I wish there was something like that for my faith. I wish there was like a a faith workout or something that I could do so I could get stronger, grow stronger in my faith as a Christian. And others in the group were listening and kind of nodding their heads and there was sort of a moment or two of silence before one of the members of our group said, well, I think there actually kind of is something like that, something like a faith workout. They said, I don't know what we would call it today, but historically it's been called a rule of life. Put simply, a rule of life is a plan or a guide for practicing the spiritual disciplines. So the same way that monks or nuns might take a rule of silence or a rule of poverty when they enter a monastic community, a rule of life is a way for everyday Christians to practice other more common disciplines like prayer or uh, scripture reading, Sabbath, those sorts of things. Well, as John Golden Gay puts it in his commentary on the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, which is what Exodus chapter 20 is, are almost like Israel's rule of life. Containing commands on everything from appropriate worship to avoiding coveting, the commands function as a plan, a guideline, a template for how best to live life. So far from a legalistic list of do's and don'ts, which is what we often turn the Ten Commandments into, they instead offer us a blueprint for how our relationship both with God and also with other human beings can best function and flourish. As Terence Fretheim puts in his commentary here, the focus of the commands is on protecting the health of the community. They serve to keep order in the world, restraining the forces of disorder, so that creation does not revert to chaos. To obey them is to be who one is created to be. To obey the Ten Commandments is to be what one is created to be. And one of those community-protecting, creation-preserving commands that helps us become who we are created to be is the ninth one, which says this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. 
you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start our exploration of this command this morning with the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. Somewhere out there, one of you is saying, of course he does. Um, One of the things I love about the Catechism, though, is its treatment of the Ten Commandments. Uh, You see, the Catechism does a masterful job of explaining what the Ten Commandments are all about, of interpreting them for us. That's because the Catechism gives us both positive as well as negative interpretations of each of the Ten Commandments. First, the the Catechism often starts with the negative. This is what this command is telling us not to do. And then it will give us a positive interpretation of the different of the Ten Commandments. This is what this command is telling us to do. And so what the catechism does is it broadens or it expands the moral and ethical picture contained in each of the Ten Commandments. For example, with this command, the ninth one, the catechism asks, what is the aim of the ninth commandment? Notice the question here. It's not just what is the commandment, But what is its aim? What is its goal? What is its purpose? What is the deeper thing that it's getting at? To which the catechism answers, that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Feeling guilty yet? I did when I read this. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth. This is the positive side. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. You see what I mean? On the negative side, the catechism tells us the ninth commandment prohibits testifying falsely, twisting others' words, gossiping, slandering, Actually condemning others, or whether in court or elsewhere, engaging in lying or deceit of any kind. Those are the things we are not supposed to do. But then on the positive side, the Catechism says that the Ninth Commandment tells us to love the truth, speak it candidly, openly acknowledge it, and do whatever we can to guard and advance our neighbor's good name. Those are the things we are to do. And when I first reread that a couple of weeks ago in, in preparation for this sermon, I thought, that is so countercultural. I actually went and showed it to Sarah. I said, How countercultural is that? It's like it was written yesterday to address the very problems we're dealing with today. Which, by the way, you should feel sorry for Sarah. This is the sort of nerd level stuff she gets from me all the time. When I come running across the house with the Heidelberg Catechism, going, Look at this. Okay. But it is countercultural, isn't it? After all, we have witnessed a dramatic and worrying increase in recent years in at least two things that I think directly relate to this command. First, we've seen a dramatic increase in uncharitable and unkind language in our public discourse, both in person and online. And then second, we've experienced a steady erosion of trust in truth, facts, honesty, and certainty. And I've seen those two things especially in our political discourse and engagement, which is why we're talking about this in this series. My thesis today is simple. As Christians, we need to care about how we use our words, and we need to care about the truth. As the ninth commandment says, our words matter. 
Misuse of the truth is sin, and speaking in ways that tear down and destroy causes the very integrity of our community, and I would actually argue our broader society to be at stake. And so we're just gonna look at those two things this morning. How we use our words, and how we talk about the truth. And we'll start with that first one, how we use our words. In his letter to the Ephesians, under a section labeled, at least in my Bible, Instructions for Christian Living, the Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesian believers. He says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's one of the passages uh, that Patrick Miller uses in his commentary on the Ten Commandments to explain what's going on here in the Ninth Commandment. He writes, the admonition to the Ephesians has to do with maintaining and enhancing the way in which a community lives together, its language, its interactions, its values, its aims, its economy. But what is most noticeable about the text is that it deals almost entirely with truth-telling and what Stephen Fowle has called word care how Christians speak to and with one another, which includes truth to and about neighbors, words of anger and bitterness, and evil talk generally. A few things to notice. First, in that passage to the Ephesians, Paul puts angry talk and falsehood on the same level as stealing. He prohibits stealing, and then he prohibits lying and angry talk in pretty much the same breath. Now, it's not biblically accurate or appropriate, but most of us have kind of a hierarchy of sins we operate according to, right? You know, like murder is way up here, and then it's like adultery, and then stealing, and then there's like 45 other ones, and then like lying and misuse of words is like somewhere way towards the bottom, right? We don't think it's that big of a deal. But what Paul is saying here is that that's not true. There is no hierarchy of sins. There's no descending order of sins. Sin is simply sin. And so Paul lumps lying and misusing our words together right with the sin of stealing here. We can't make ourselves, in other words, feel better by saying, well, at least I haven't killed anyone. At least I haven't stolen anything. Because what Paul is saying here is that when we speak unkindly and we lie, we do do those things. Jesus actually says the same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying there is that hateful, angry words are just as bad as murder because hateful, angry words lead to murder, okay? 
Certainly you can, you can have hateful, angry words without going all the way to killing someone, but you can't really go all the way to killing someone without first having hateful, angry words about them, right? And that's Jesus' point. The two are connected, and so one is just as bad as the other. The same thing is true of stealing. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage by lumping it together. As a number of commentators I read pointed out, lying is as bad as stealing because it robs other people of their good name. Unkind talk is as bad as stealing because it robs people of their dignity. That's Paul's point here. We cannot downplay the sinfulness of our words by thinking that sinful words somehow lack the gravity of other sins. The truth is that our words matter just as much as our actions. And so as a result, we are called to use our words, like every other area of our lives, for good, not evil. Second, that goes not only for what we say in person, but also what we say online. I'm sure by now my intense dislike of social media is no secret to any of you. I've talked about it from the pulpit numerous times. Over the years, I've had Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, and I've also since deleted every one of them, and I would delete Facebook too, except for Sarah, my wife, finds a lot of good stuff on the Granville Buy Nothing page. So, But part of why I dislike social media so much, and there's a lot of reasons, that's a totally separate sermon, come up to me after the service, I can give you a whole bunch, but part of why I dislike social media is because of the way people talk on social media. For starters, a lot of what people say on social media simply isn't true. The fact is that social media is rampant with half-truth, corrupted truth, and spin. It's a giant echo chamber of rumor, gossip, and slander. In a word, it's full of lies. It's full of cats, too, but that's besides the point. But even when what people say on social media is true, it's often unkind. People say things online that they would never say in person or at least they say it in a way that they would never say it in person. I don't know what it is, but for whatever reason, having a screen in front of us makes us think that all the rules of etiquette, decorum, and common decency just go out the window. I have seen loving, good people become unrecognizable rage monsters online who bear no resemblance to the person that they are when you interact with them in real life. But here's the thing. What we say and do on social media is just as real as what we say and do in the real world. It's just as real, it's just as hurtful and harmful to others, and it is just as sinful. And so what we need to do instead is speak with kindness and grace. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Paul says. And if smartphones had existed back then, he would have included texts, posts, and snaps too but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Maybe that's a good rule of thumb. Maybe before we speak or before we post or before we text, we should ask ourselves the question, is what I'm about to say going to benefit someone? Is it gonna benefit the person I'm talking about? Is it gonna benefit the person or the people who are listening to me? And is it going to benefit me and my own soul? Or is it just going to make me more angry, more outraged, more frustrated and irritated? You know, a year or so ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. Um, He's the principal of a Christian school. And as part of their enrollment process, uh, he interviews parents of prospective students. And one of the questions that he asks when he's interviewing parents is, 
What do you hope that your child's time at the school will accomplish for them? And so he asked that question uh, about a year ago to a a set of parents, and um, the dad kind of thought about it for a second and then said, you know, I hope that my child's time at the school will help them to become a more charitable and nuanced person in their interactions with others. Charitable and nuanced. That answer really struck my friend. And it really struck me when he told me that story as well. Because that's what I feel we're missing in our society and culture right now. That's what we need. We need more charity and nuance. We need it in our actions, but we need it in our words too. We need kindness and grace. We need compassion and care. We need goodness and love. We need to build each other up, uphold each other, and sustain each other. As Paul says to the Ephesians, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what it looks like to keep the ninth commandment. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. And in today's day and age, that's what it looks like to be a Christian who engages in the political process. It looks like charity and nuance. It looks like wholesome talk. It looks like speaking about others, including those we disagree with, in fact, especially those we disagree with, with the same degree of love and care that we ourselves have first received from Christ. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you love only those who love you, what are you doing more than others? Even tax collectors and sinners do that. Love your enemies. That's what he tells us. Our words matter. How we use them does too. Using our words poorly is sinful and it tears God's creation apart. Using them well, though, is good and it builds God's creation. And so in our political discourse and elsewhere, let's use our words well. The other piece of this commandment, though, has to do with the truth. I'll be honest, the erosion of truth in our culture in recent years concerns me greatly. It concerns me because as a Christian, I believe there is such a thing as truth. I believe there's such a thing as ultimate truth, in fact. Capital T truth, as some people call it. Universal truth. Truth that is true for all people in all times and all places, regardless of whether they believe it or not. You see, contrary to what some will tell you, truth is not relative. It's not personally determined. It's not individualistic. Truth is either true or it's not. But if it's not, then it's not truth. And yet, our culture really struggles to believe that idea these days, don't we? Instead, we believe things like, well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is fine, but don't try to convince me of your truth, because I don't want your truth encroaching on my truth. And the reason I don't want your truth encroaching on my truth is because, to be truthful, I think my truth is more truthful than your truth. I'm playing around a little bit, but that's what we believe these days. We live in an age of alternative facts, competing certainties, and individualized information where we all get to pick and choose what we think is true and false, right and wrong, and everything in between. And that ought to concern us. It ought to concern us in general as Americans, but it ought to concern us even more as Christians. It ought to concern us 
Because the fact is, when we play high and loose with the truth like that, it has an effect. First, it has an effect on our society. It's no secret that we're more polarized in the United States than we've been in a while. Um, I won't say we're more polarized than we've ever been. We did fight a civil war, after all, okay? But we're certainly more polarized than any other time I can remember. And talking to people who are older than me, it seems that we're more polarized than many of them can remember, too. Now, there are certainly a number of reasons for that. Ed Stetzer does a good job of chasing some of those reasons down in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, But I would argue that at least part of why we're becoming so polarized these days is because of how we talk about the truth. For instance, this is a little something a friend of mine shared with me a while back. Um, It's called the Media Bias Chart, version 10.0. That's how many different versions they've had to release so far. And I think they've only been doing it since 2015. So they just have to keep releasing new versions of this. Uh, This one was most recently updated in August, and it's put out by AdFontis Media, which is a neutral watchdog organization whose express goal is to fact check major news and media organizations and then rate their level of bias. Might be a little hard to see, but basically what you've got going on along the horizontal axis on the bottom is a measurement of, of partisanship and bias towards either the left or the right. And then along the vertical axis is a measure of news value and reliability, which indicates how truthful or not an organization is. And so as a result, the further to the top and the closer to the middle are the more reliable organizations, and the ones closer to the bottom and further to either side are considered less reliable. And just so you know, before you get all angry at me about where your preferred news network is on here, AdFontis has been criticized by people on both the left and the right which I humbly think means they're doing something right, okay? Now let's try to think critically uh, about this for a moment. There's an old adage in news media, maybe some of you know it, if it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. What that basically means is that news organizations like to highlight controversy, fear, things that cause anger, If there's blood in the story, they put it on the front page of the newspaper. Kids, newspapers used to be these things that people would write, and they'd send them to your door. (laughs) And some really dorky people used to deliver them. (laughs) But we see this in any kind of media these days, right? Controversy, fear, and anger is the stuff that gets highlights. This has been proven by study after study after study. Most recently, they've been applying it to social media, where researchers have found that bad news spreads up to six times faster than good news. Things that cause fear, anger, and controversy spread up to six times faster on social media than good news. And the reason is simple. Because that kind of stuff puts eyeballs on screens. And eyeballs on screens equal ratings. And ratings equals advertisers, and advertisers equals money, which means that it pays literally for these organizations to make us more afraid, angry, and to generate more controversy because it gets more people to watch them, and it benefits them. And how do you generate controversy? How do you make people afraid? How do you get them angry? Well, one of the easiest ways is to pick sides, to become partisan, to choose right or left. But what happens when you pick sides? Will you start favoring that side and demonizing the other side, which makes you less reliable? 
And so what that means is that it pays for these companies and organizations to actively work their way further to the left or the right and closer to the bottom. Now, who benefits from this? Well, certainly the companies and, and media organizations do, right? Because they get ratings and they get revenue. And their star presenters do because they get rich and famous. And their preferred parties and candidates benefit from this too because these organizations and their presenters serve as unofficial lobbyists for them. But we don't. Our society is not getting better for this. I mean, look around. We are not becoming happier, healthier, and better equipped to serve God and his kingdom in our culture. Instead, we're becoming more angry, more spiteful, more hateful, and more divided. That's what flexibility with the truth, bending the truth, manipulating the truth does. It polarizes. It drives us apart. It allows us to demonize each other and hate each other. In a word, it unravels our society in exactly the way that the Ten Commandments tell us will happen if we break them. So that's one reason we should care about the truth. We should care about the truth because it has an effect on our society. But there's another reason we should care about the truth, and that's that the truth has an effect on our faith, too. You see, as Christians, we claim to be people of the truth. We claim that there is truth. In fact, we claim that there is one truth and that it is true for everyone in the world. And as God's people, we claim to know and understand and live in that truth. It's the truth of the gospel. And so as people of the truth, we must do all we can to protect the truth. We must protect the truth because if we are witnesses of untruth in minor things, people will see us as witnesses of untruth in major things too. If we don't present the truth in minor things, why would anyone listen to us present the truth of the gospel? If we prove ourselves distrustful in minor things, why would people listen to us talk about what we believe is the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ? And so as Christians, we need to be clear. There are no such things as alternative facts. There are just facts. And anything that's not a fact is false. And there is no such thing as fake news. There is simply news and then what we think about it. And there is no such thing as an atomized, individualized, personally curated version of the truth. There is simply truth, capital T, universal. And as people who claim to be people of that truth, we must do our best to protect and defend it. So how do we do that? A couple brief thoughts and then we'll wrap up. First, when it comes to how we talk about others, one rule of thumb that someone shared with me a number of years ago is to pretend that that person is in the room with us when we're talking about them. And I'll confess that I don't do this as much as I wish I did, but in the times that I do do that, when I imagine that person standing right there next to me, it forces me automatically to talk kinder about them. Because if they really were there listening, I would automatically be more charitable, nuanced, and gracious in what I say about them. And if that doesn't work for you, by the way, then instead of imagining that person standing there, imagine Jesus is. Imagine he's standing next to you listening to what you say about someone else. Because if what we believe about him really is true, he actually is. Second, remember that what we share matters just as much as what we say. In his commentary on the Ten Commandments, Miller writes, the truth when it is half-truth, when it is corrupted truth or spin, can be used to deceive. Then it is lying. 
Much rumor, much undoing begins with partial truths. Thus, reporters and writers, political leaders, and their representatives need to keep this in mind. Half-truths about our neighbor can be as violent in their effects as the intended false witness. That's true not just for reporters and writers or political leaders and their representatives, though. It's true for all of us. You see, when we share half-truth or corrupted truth, whether we're the ones who originated it or not, we are responsible for that. It doesn't matter whether we're the ones who started it. If we share misinformation, then we are guilty of misinformation, which is really the same thing as lying. And so whether in person or online, we need to be careful about what we share. If we don't know for a fact that something is true, then we shouldn't say it, shouldn't share it, and shouldn't pass it along. Conjecture, assumption, and speculative theorizing, especially when it demonizes others, does not build up our society. Third, we need to be thoughtful about where we get our news and information. I'm not gonna tell you who to listen to, just like I'm not gonna tell you who to vote for, okay? I'm not gonna tell you who not to listen to either. Instead, I'll simply say this. First, if you only ever hear stuff that you agree with, it should probably make you wonder how fair and truthful your news sources are being. Second, and related to that, listen to the other side sometimes. And not just to gain ammo so that then you can demolish them online, but instead to hear what they think, to understand them so that ultimately you can respect them, which is what we are called to as Christians. And then finally, ask yourself the question, if I choose to believe this, who benefits? Who gets something? And what do they get? And then ask yourself the follow-up, is that why they want me to believe this? Because they'll get something? Or do they want me to believe this simply because it's true? And then fourth and finally, remember that the greatest truth is the truth we hold as Christians. The truth of the gospel. That truth is the greatest truth in the history of the world. This is what it says. It says that though we plunged ourselves into falsehood, despair, and death as sinful people, our good God of truth sent his son Jesus Christ to save us. He came to set us free from sin and death and to restore us to new life. He came, in other words, to restore us to the truth, to make us who we were created to be again. And so as his people, we need to live into that truth. We need to live as people of the truth. We need to live as people who keep the ninth commandment by using our words well and defending and sharing the truth. Because doing so will not only safeguard our society and culture, but more importantly, will offer a light and a witness to the truth of the gospel in a world that needs it now, maybe more than ever. So do not give false testimony. Use your words well as people of the truth and guard and protect the truth because that is who we are called to be. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are the God of truth. That is what we confess. Therefore, anything that is true is of you and anything that is false is of the devil. And Lord, as your people, we are called to speak truthfully, to do so in a way that is gracious and caring and that reflects your character. 
and to do so in a way that reflects the love that you have already given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, because we are still sinful people, but help us more and more through the power of your Holy Spirit to be transformed and live into the new life that you have made possible for us in Christ.